if somebody slips and falls in the hospital while you're taking care of a COVID-19 patient, they can't sue either. Because everybody is concerned about COVID, people with MIs were staying home uh, because they knew if they went to the hospital, they, they'd catch COVID. Hello and welcome, Rick Bucata and special guest, Greg Moore, who's been with us multiple times. Greg, thanks for joining us. And Greg Henry. Hello. Uh, Ann Arbor, doing fine. And uh, we're going to do a series of uh, Greg's cases today. We always look forward to them. Last time we did it was uh, all pediatric cases. And this is uh, a, a little mixture coming up. But first, we want to tell you about some of the legislature that's coming out there or some of the rules that are already out there related to uh, liability in the setting of uh, COVID-19. So, oh, this one doesn't really relate to COVID. This is a great one. This came out, um, ASAP sent out a blanket email to all its members on May 27th saying, please support uh, House Resolution 6910, which would ensure every emergency physician would have uh, medical staff due process rights. This was uh, sponsored by Paul Ruiz, who is an emergency physician, who's a member of the House of Representatives. He's a physician out, I think, in the kind of like the Palm Springsy area. Actually, Paul uh, made the uh, newspaper today in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm recording. Uh, we're recording June 30th, and he was in the L.A. Times today. Uh, there's this new surge going on here in uh, California, and um, he's basically you know, making the plea for uh, resources and protective equipment and uh, masking up and all of those things, which we should have, should have, should have done a, a month ago. But in any case, uh, ASAP wants us to support this, makes due process, and this would have due process no matter whether you're a contract physician or employer, no matter what. Because right now, when you worked at our hospital, if you were taken off the schedule, you had no due process rights. You were out. Um, any thoughts about that, guys? Yeah, number one, if you're taken off the medical staff, they've got to have some reason. I mean, they've got to be able to say something at the executive committee about why it uh, happened. Now, depending on how you were set up, if you're a part of a contract group, they could just say, we don't like you. We don't want you. They didn't have to give uh, an actual reason why they asked for your removal. And in most cases, it took place. Now, at least, you're supposed to have some defensible reason for having removed someone. Isn't that right, Rick? Well, that's the thrust of this. Greg Moore, what do you think? Uh, about this legislation or? Yeah. The I mean, idea of uh, due do process for uh, doctors, whether you're a contract doctor or a employee doctor. Well, I mean, I think that's somebody that something that everybody, you know, would love to have. And and, uh, you know, to me, the thing that uh, most is, you know, in these initial comments that I'm thinking about is the privileges and whether they are actually being taken away because that's going to follow you for every credentialing in the future. Have you lost your privileges somewhere? And it'd be nice that if someone's going to do that, that you get a reason, not, you know, because the implication is you're a bad doctor or you did something wrong. Uh, I know that I've had situations in the past where I've, 
my privileges are gone. But there was a statement provided saying this has nothing to do with this character or performance. They're just gone, uh, like from a mutual decision. So that was the thing I was focusing on early is, uh, you know, I would always want to have an explanation if privileges were affected. Yeah. Well, another way to look at it is uh, the group fires you. It uh, means that uh, you're just not on the schedule anymore. <laughs> and you can have all the privileges in the world, but you just can't come work here. Um, so I think that the idea of having uh, termination from a hospital's privileges uh, when a physician may not want that, uh, may want to fight it, he's, he's not really fighting his being fired because the group has the right to fire you. These are independent contractors in, in many cases, and they can say goodbye. And if you're an employee, uh, that doesn't go through the medical staff. That goes through HR, you know, in terms of where you given uh, rec uh, recognition of your, uh, your service not being satisfactory, et cetera, et cetera. You're given warnings and you still don't uh, perk up there, that kind of thing. So the, the relationship to medical staff privileges and your ability to continue working at the hospital, I think, are really two different things. But I think if you, uh, it, according to this, ASEP says everybody should have them, no matter whether you're employee or contractor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always gravitated towards employee relationships because you do have those protections. Right. You mm -hmm. have those protections, and you know, I I realize that. At least in, in my experience in the past, if you sign up for another relationship, it's too bad for you. You know, I think there was a lot of that that happened with this COVID and the, and the volumes going down as people were just told, see you later. You know, you don't have any choice. I don't, we don't care what your contract says. Well, that's what uh, ASAP is doing. And they'd like everybody to click on the bottom of their the link there and get to your Congressman, um, let's let's. So, uh, Greg, did you have a credentialing case that you wanted to bring up? Yeah. So, uh, well, I, mean, I would make one more comment on the the due process. Go ahead. Splice it in. Oh, um, yeah. I just, I, I mean, I would support anything that gives more due process rather than less due process. I would support it in in the workplace. I would even uh, support that in my marriage sometimes too. It'd be nice <laughs> to have. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, you're not going to get that, Greg. Let me just tell you right now. But l let me tell you, I have seen this go both ways. I've seen people insist on due process because of totally other reasons. They were let go by the group. The hospital asked the group to let somebody go, quite frankly, because they were being a jerk. They were this or that. They had patient complaints. It's not a simple question. And so I think having the process is important, but it can't be to the point where you can't fire people who need to be fired. Uh, we, we shouldn't be in favor of that. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll, I have a case I can share with you that, uh, you know, I'm not an administrator, but uh, I bet many listeners are. And if you are going to fire someone for due reasons, uh, 
you have to be careful with following the rules and following the protocols. And I, I have a case called Denman versus St. Vincent's Hospital, Indiana, and it's an OB physician. But I, I also want the listeners to realize that a lot of law that applies to emergency physicians comes from other areas and other specialties. And this was an OB physician woman, and she'd worked at a hospital for 20 years. She was on call, you know, out at a restaurant, paged for a delivery. So she said, listen, while I'm coming in, I want you to, to the nurse, I want you to do this, get this set up, turn on this machine and so forth. And when she got there, that nurse had left and none of the orders had been done. And so the physician was upset. And 12 hours after the incident, uh, the nursing staff reported her and said, you know, she came in and she was angry and shouting and hostile and ventilating around the department to other nurses. And then, ding, 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 they claimed that there was alcohol on her breath. Uh-oh. You know, to get her back, I guess. And eight days later, a hospital review process was done, and the physician wasn't even aware of the meeting. Um, and the result was a suspension of privileges and also a referral to the state medical board for action. And the state medical board then took the hospital's meeting minutes and referred the physician to alcoholic intervention and declared an alcohol problem based on the hospital input. And then the state board said, you must be monitored for five years in order to keep your, your job. So uh, the hospital also gave testimony that she had had heavy drinking in the past, uh, was late for work, missed meetings. And these were all true, but they'd happened several years prior uh, during a period where she was uh, going through a divorce. So this physician then brought suit against the hospital saying, you know, you've defamed, defamed me, there's fraud here, uh, you've interfered with my contract, you didn't give me due process, um, and this false testimony and breach of hospital policies. Uh, and she said, I, have a, I had a drinking problem, I was getting divorced, but I got treatment on my own, I have not had a drink in two years. Your report was 12 hours after the incident. If you had just breathalyzed me or tested me at the moment, my level would be zero. But you took away that chance for me to show my side of the case. And um, this was taken to court, and the physician was awarded $4.75 million from the hospital for, you know, not having their ducks in a row. So. And, you know, I, you know, my, my feeling is that pays for a lot of margaritas <laughs> in whatever place she wants to travel. Right. So yeah, the she, take- doesn't have to, she doesn't have to work anymore. She doesn't have to worry about yeah. COVID or anything like that. Yeah. But the take home from this should be, if you're going to start the process, do it right. Right. You if, better if be you, careful. Yeah. You can't sort of half-ass go off and uh, claim someone has done this or that. If we don't have a mechanism to show that, I can see why she would be upset and and why a, a uh, committee might award her money based on that. You know, very pretty straightforward. Yes. You know, uh, before we move on, I just wanted to uh, remind folks of the cases that we reviewed in the past where um, if the, if there was a cap on pain and suffering in a lawsuit, which made it unattractive for an, for an attorney to take the case, uh, they would 
start this new tact where they would go after the hospital for um, uh, credentialing errors, where they basically credentialed the physician to work in the hospital when, in fact, they should not because they did not uh, adequately look at uh, prior um, behavior in terms of credentials that are the hospitals, any disciplinary action taking against that physician. So wrongful credentialing became a way that you could uh, cir uh, circle around the idea of pain and suffering limits and just go after the hospital as a deep pocket in a case where a physician screwed up. So uh, speaking of privileges, there's an email that we got from a fellow who uh, asked a question about listing of privileges and should you uh, check off privileges every time you, uh, every every two years you have to re-credential and you have this li privilege list, which you have to reaffirm that, yes, I want that privilege list, that I can do these uh, things on the list, et cetera, et cetera. And he's saying that there's some wacko things on the list that has occurred over time. Uh, one of them was, as an example, Swangan's catheterizations. And he's saying should I go through these privileges lists and scratch out the stuff that I really have never done or, or am likely unlikely to do, you know, like coldocentesis and those kinds of things, which were on there in the past, but just we don't do them. And um, and my advice was I would let sleeping dogs lie. I think that, that emergency physicians need the ability to be able to do anything that needs to be done in their uh, professional opinion, if it's a life-saving uh, endeavor, even if it's your first frickin' burr hole kind of thing, if it's, um, and I think in emergency physician privileges, there should be this caveat at the end that says something akin to that in the, in the uh, ish, uh, incidents where there is a life-threatening event that the physician is uh, uh, allowed to do whatever pre uh, procedures he or she feels are life-saving. Uh, any thoughts on that, uh, Greg Moore? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I actually had a personal experience with this. Uh, last time I credentialed, uh, I looked at it uh, conscientiously, and one of the things was emergen uh, emergency cesarean section. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm in a hospital. I got OB residency. They're going to run down. and I, So I changed it, and I said uh, I would – like these privileges with supervision like of course i'd call them down i might do it but not if they you know they had to be standing there by me and the committee looked at that like well you used to be able to do it mm -hmm. and now you're saying you need supervision your skills must be deteriorating and it caused a big problem for me and they said there's two ways we can do that. Have you write this long letter explaining why you changed your answer or just forget that you changed your answer. And so I'm like you, Rick. I agree with you. I let a sleeping dog lie. And I said, OK, I'll do the cesarean section. <laughs> yeah, I think, yes. And that was the whole point is once you open this can of worms of saying uh, I, I can't do this anymore kind of thing, it's, it's like. For those who want to make grief in your life, you've let them, uh, given them an opportunity. Right, yeah. right. But but let's be honest here. There are a lot of things we haven't done for a long time, which other which are not emergencies. And in those cases, it is reasonable to have somebody else do it. 
I don't know that there are very many emergent reasons for a Swan Gans catheter uh, anymore. I just I just can't think of them at this moment in time. But let's let's save that bullet. The 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 uh, anything uh, that you need to when someone's about to die or terminate or do worse. I think everybody understands that. Um, be honest, though, about taking some cre- some credentials off the list, which nobody does anymore, and are not truly emergent. Uh, I'm going to stick with my position to just leave the damn list alone. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I, I see no no value in 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 cleaning cleaning house here. Uh, with regard to the, the credentials. Now, if any of you out there have a contrary opinion, now you got to remember that uh, Greg Moore is MDJD, so you're going to be barking up a wrong tree here. But if you have another opinion about uh, this, uh, let us know. But uh, I think that it's two out of three, Greg. Let, <laughs> let, let sleeping dogs lie here. Uh, next thing we have is, uh, oh, yeah, this is an article written by uh, Bill Sullivan, uh, who's a DOJD. He wrote this in EP Monthly, um, and it's a summary of the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, the PREP Act of 2005, that is basically going to give a, some blanket protections against uh, being sued in, in the setting of a uh, federally declared uh, emergency. And so Alex Azar declared that emergency March 10th, and it covers basically everybody who can write, uh, who is a licensed practitioner, who can write a prescription is covered. And um, what activities are covered? Well, medical negligence is covered. You are absolved of committing neg- medical negligence under this act. Even reckless uh, acts are uh, absolved, as long as it relates to the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of COVID-19. Uh, and so... Uh, Bill recommends whenever you're treating a, a person, even if the diagnosis is not established, but you, uh, but you think that you're working them up for it, maybe a, uh, a COVID-19, that you put that in your chart so make it very clear uh, by doing that that this immunity would p- apply to you. Uh, it it absolves you from both federal and state laws, so the medical boards can't come after you if you screw up uh, either. So you're allowed to do reckless things. Um, Inadvertent negligence, you're allowed to do slip and fall. If somebody slips and falls in the hospital while you're taking care of a COVID-19 patient, they can't sue sue either. Um, allegations of lack of security, so uh, you can't you can't uh, that that's that's covered here. Motor vehicle accidents. Say you're driving uh, on the way to take care of a COVID patient and your motor vehicle accident, they can't sue you for that either. It is like this blanket, blanket, blanket. So Bill Sullivan says, just make sure you put it down. Willful misconduct is not uh, carried and uh, covered in this. And this basically is good until October 2024 or until this emergency is no longer in force, which uh, which. I think we'll, we'll probably be 2024. <laughs> yeah, yeah no. that's that's probably true, Rick. I, I think that we shouldn't use this for crazy stuff, but 
there's going to be a lot of things at certain hospitals. You realize that during most of the COVID situation in this area, hospitals weren't full. They were empty. There were a few hospitals that did a lot of COVID in the Detroit metropolitan area, and everybody else was sending doctors home. They didn't have work for them. There were a lot of other things that weren't actually happening. In fact, uh, it became almost a joke that because everybody is concerned about COVID, people with MIs were staying home uh, because they knew if they went to the hospital, they, they'd catch COVID. So I think that uh, I think there's a there is a little craziness here, Rick. If you're not careful, Greg Moore, any thoughts about the, the this is kind of like blanket immunity that is uh, out there for a long period of time, as long as it relates to your care of COVID patients. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, I think it's nice. I think you know uh, if you're just trying to do your best in an uncertain time. Um, it's nice to have that backup. Uh, I mean, I, right now I'm thinking of drugs that, oh, oh, you better give this drug right away for a COVID. And now it's like, oh, my gosh, don't anybody give this drug. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, but why are you doing it? Because you're trying to do the best you can with what you have. And it's kind of sort of a quasi Good Samaritan type uh, philosophy to me, it seems like. Like, hey, you, you do the best with what you got under the situations like any disaster might be, uh, an earthquake or anything. So I, I kind of like this. Uh, I'll be honest, uh, Rick, I, I wasn't aware of it, um, but I'm already making a dot phrase on my electronic medical record that says uh, possible COVID af- right after the patient's time seed. So yeah, that you can't I can put that covered. down on. You can't put that down on those ankle sprains. <laughs> you never know. That's a, the manifestation of this virus is very, very uh, broad. Oh, I'm I'm sure it gives arthralgias. Yeah, I'm going to give it a try. <laughs> By the way, just as a, a general rule, whenever the facility is overwhelmed. And I had it happen a few times in my career when we had uh, two buses with kids uh, hit at the same time, that sort of thing. We, we were never prepared at a smaller hospital to take care of that. We had that stuff on every chart I, I wrote, you know, overwhelmed situation, this or that, because there was no way they were going to get the same perfect care they would have gotten if they'd come in one child at a time uh, from some sort of auto accident. But when you have 23 people from an incident laying there, make a note to that effect, because in five years, everybody ought to remember this was not the finest hour for the emergency department. And then the other issue that comes in when there's these sort of situations is uh, biasing, where uh, you miss the forest for the trees. Uh, You're inundated with COVID, and there's another diagnosis in there that has similar symptoms. And later you would say, well, that was clear miss, you know, malpractice. Um, And it seems like this is trying to help you uh, with, with everything because we're in a COVID world. Right. You know, here uh, was an interesting one. The LA Times ran an editorial on May 4th 
opposing the request of six medical trade and professional organizations asking Governor Newsom, uh, future president <laughs> Governor Newsom, to augment the liability uh, protections already there. So we already, we just reviewed what kind of uh, protections we have for on the federal basis, which basically preempts everything uh, in the states. So these organizations are saying, well, it's not enough. In the state, we need some more. In the People's Republic of California, we, we need broader, uh, pr broader protections. And what triggered this was a triage document that was being circulated in draft form about what to do if all your resources were uh, taken and you had to decide who was going to get the ventilator and who was not going to get the ventilator. Um, and it was a, a document to help you make those decisions. And in the, and part of that document uh, asked people to consider how much life the person would have if they survived uh, the uh, incident. So basically this said, old people, you're out because you don't have that much life left anyway. So we're gonna take the younger people and put them in. And uh, the time said, well, obviously this is gonna discri discriminate against the elderly. And it's also gonna discriminate against all of the uh, marginally, uh, marginal, marginalized people in society who have receive poor health care throughout their lives and are therefore not projected to live as long as their wealthier, whiter counterparts. Um, now, uh, ultimately, that triage document was taken away because you have to remember the federal government says every life is equal. If you're 85, you're equal to a 15-year-old in the eyes of the federal government. They don't make any distinctions between um, this life is more valuable than that life uh, uh, when it comes to the to the law, at least. And and in any case, L.A. Times was against this um, these sex organizations wishing to expand even further the uh, protections that already uh, existed out there. Uh, and I, I think we're coming into the home stretch here because I want to get to these cases. Uh, I wanted to tell you about one other thing. It's called the, the Coronavirus Provider Protection Act. This is a congressional act sponsored by Phil Rowe, who's an MD from Tennessee on the, on the Republican side, and Lou Correa, who's a Democrat from the California. There are, that's, all who, that's all we have in California. You may know that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this was developed by the AMA, National Specialty Societies, and a few state medical associations. And catch this, they want to broaden this liability protection even further. And I'm going to just give you some examples. They say, well, if the hospital has stopped all elective surgery because uh, there's been this declared emergency, <clears throat> and as a result, there's a delay in doing a biopsy of Mr. So-and-so's uh, uh, lesion here and there, and as a result, the cancer is diagnosed at a late stage, and as a result, the patient uh, uh, sues you because you didn't um, diagnose this promptly. Or there was a, as a, there was some delayed surgery that took place that should not have taken uh, delayed surgery. Or cancer screening. You didn't get your mammogram because the hospital wasn't doing them because uh, it was shut down because of COVID, and now look what happened. You got ca breast cancer. So, or, or your annual screening visit to your doctor. 
those things they want to they want to have a blanket authority so that you cannot sue any in any of those situations which is uh now i don't know how far this this uh proposed um legislation has gotten but this extends it even further than just in the care of covid patients uh, Rick, I, th- I think this is craziness taken to the other end of the extreme. I think at a certain point in time, uh, somebody is going to sue because we didn't d- check their uh, pap smear on the right day and that sort of thing. I mean, this gets a little crazy after a while. I want them to bring me some real cases I want them to show me cases where this took place because I think most of this is theoretical crap. Greg Moore, what do you think? I I think that uh, as you go through the legal process, eventually you might end up with 12 people that you're looking into their eyes and you say, I would have loved to have done that biopsy. My office was closed. My OR was taken away from me. I, you know, that person would have been first on my list. I would have loved to have done it. I couldn't do it. Now, are you gonna are you gonna find me guilty? And I think if you look into reasonable twelve people, they're gonna they're gonna understand that that would be my hope as a defendant. Right. Well, well this- I understand. I understand it'd be the hope, but you know what? <laughs> we haven't. We haven't seen that kind of denial of medical care, at least here in the Midwest. I mean, have we had some COVID cases? Of course. Have we still taken out the appendix? Have we uh, reduced the hernias? Have we done all the other things? The answer is yes, we have. And nobody has really suffered because the COVID patients have made us unable to give out reasonable health care. Oh, yeah. But I empathize with the tumor that's progressed that would have been done electively or the uh, colonoscopy that you didn't get to for three months. I, I kind of empathize with there being some sort of a policy that kind of just says, yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's true, you know. So, yeah, that's that, I think that's a good point. So I don't know where this stands and who supports it. I would think that all the uh, physicians would support this. The hospitals would support it. It just makes the uh, circle of protection just wider and wider and wider. Um, can I mention this one case that, that I thought, you know, if this was my mom or my sister or something like that, I would be really kind of upset. This is a coronavirus patient death that was reported in the Wall Street Journal, uh, April 29th. A woman in her, in her 60s with a worsening respiratory distress was put on a ventilator by family medicine residents who accidentally turned the uh, ventilator up too high and as a result blew out her lungs. Her lungs. Yeah. She had a suddenly worsening condition and she arrested. And uh, the residents admitted to a critical care doctor who came down to help that uh, they didn't really know how to properly work the settings on their respirator. And the Wall Street Journal reported several other uh, uh, cases uh, similarly. And uh, they quoted a, a resident from New York Presbyterian Columbia Hospital who said uh, that patients were being treated like guinea pigs. Um, 
And you heard this thing where everybody was called to the front lines, you know, whether and they wanted to have medical students who hadn't graduated yet, you know, allowed to come into the hospital and 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 in a sense of desperation. Well, here is somebody who had their lungs blown out by somebody who didn't know how to work a respirator. And um, I would be pissed. Yes. Yes. Rick, we can't get into craziness here. Because there's COVID running around doesn't mean you ought to uh, support bad medical care. Well, the whole it, issue here was related to uh, res proper resident supervision. Um, was it there or not? And they're all going to say, you know, uh, hell was breaking loose, and um, this we did our we did our best, and we and this patient has was a clean kill. What do you think, Greg Moore? Uh boy, it's just. It's extremely sad. It's like I, th I really think that this issue of risk management has really highlighted all the different angles that you're coming from. Yes, uh, the government's saying we want to give you immunity, but then here's a case that says, well, look what happens when you do that. And uh, it's <laughs> the world is complicated. <laughs> I think it's very hard. You know, uh, Moving on, there was another email that uh, from Chris Slusher, who's uh, we. I've, I think I've known Chris Slusher for thirty years. Right, right. Um, he said, you know, that <clears throat> some of the Boston hospitals are people are putting people on on ECMO, and and uh, he cited a case of a 47, 49 year old attorney who was put on ECMO and who survived, and you know that's not uh, unusual now. Uh, um, Aaron Skolnick, one of our friends who teaches in the EMA course, uh, is a emergency physician, but who's also boarded in critical care, addiction medicine, um, just about everything you can think of. He's boarded in it, and he's at Mayo in, in um, Scottsdale, and they have ECMO patients who are uh, um, f failed ventilators uh, who are uh, in there because of COVID. I think this is all over the place, and so the question becomes. How does this limited resource get applied? Does it get applied to you or I, Greg, or does because we do, do we make the make the cut on our, our ages? Yeah, because we're all old. <laughs> are they going to give you know, it? To how us? are they going to decide this kind of thing? Because yeah. not everybody can get on on ECMO, and um, uh, hopefully, this wasn't a a decision that had to be made. But now that there's this resurgence. I can tell you in Los Angeles, they're writing all the time about, you know, ERs are uh, over uh, busy with these COVID patients. ICUs are essentially full. And we are uh, at a, a point where if we continue at the rate we're going for the next week or two, the, the ER, the uh, hospital ICUs will be um, full. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, this was coming before and it may be coming again. These kind of decisions and uh, corners and... Uh, I, I know on the last initial round, many facilities were gathering committees of ethics people and, and a, a variety and going to start to try to tackle a policy and approach to when you don't have enough for everyone who gets it. It's it's so hard. Uh, but I do know some facilities were, were mobilizing to try to start to answer those questions, and it seemed like things got better. But uh, – Maybe it's going to come back. We have about 145 emergency departments in the state of Michigan. 
I bet there aren't eight hospitals or maybe 10 of that group who could actually do, you know, ECMO sorts of things. Um, it, it, is, it is not going to be everywhere where we're making these decisions because quite frankly, most hospitals won't do it for patients anyway. And if for the rare cases, those hospital those cases are transferred in. I the the same moral questions exist, but it's not going to be the common situation. Um, I think we should just skip right to. I don't think there's anything earth shattering uh, here, Greg. Why, why don't we pick up on, on your cases? Um, I would would, would not want to miss this opportunity. You've got a some really interesting cases, very uh, cogent points, a lot of take home here. Um, uh, we were going to divide these up, um, but Greg, I'll do it any way you want. Same here. Uh, yeah. It's uh, well, want me to do the first one? Sure. Sure. Uh, this is a, a case of a 14 year old boy prescribed Selexim. Uh, for depression as a at a pediatric urgent care pediatric urgent care uh, patient committed suicide five months later by overdosing on the medicine uh, there's a black box on that drug regarding risk of uh, adolescent suicide the mother said the risk was never discussed and a psychiatric uh, referral should have been uh, given but it wasn't and um well, how do you think this came out, uh, Greg Henry? You don't know the answer here, Greg yeah. Warren. I do. The, well, the, was there money changing hands here? Yeah, I, I think there there may be. Yes, and the reason is without giving some warning of the drug or follow up with a physician who handles this kind of question. You realize most people, most pediatricians, most people in the community family docs will not be handling this kind of case. I think it could it could come down on the physician who started them on the medicine if they didn't get them into some continuous health care. Greg Moore, this is your case. Tell us what you think here. Well, uh, you know, this one, uh, after pretty short deliberation of three hours, the jury awarded uh, $7.65 million. Whoa. And uh, <laughs> I... I, I, I pick this case out because I think it on a lot of different levels and it's say, well, why, why are we doing this on emergency medicine risk management? And it's a peds case, but a lot of cases from other specialties t uh, touch us. They touch us. And here was a pediatrician kind of crossing over into psychiatry and uh, kind of practicing it a little. And I think it's okay if you know that's how things should start. But you probably should get the expert at some point to come in behind you and bless it. So that's issue number one. And I know sometimes in the ER we might have someone come in and it's the first time they've had hypertension. And maybe it's a level where you think you need to start it. But you're kind of practicing internal medicine. Uh, so it's really kind of optimal to get that person into someone who does that for a living if you're going to start the journey. And then the other thing is – uh, that you highlighted already is uh, you've got a duty to warn when you when you give a prescription uh, you you have a duty to warn of the side effects and if you in this case actually 
one of the one of the plaintiff's arguments is you didn't give me a package insert to read it to to learn about this medication, and I I would have read that and um, maybe a little long winded, but I'm gonna I'm gonna segue into uh, so whose job is it to warn a patient of medication problems? This comes up. It's come up many times in. Uh, famous legal cases, uh, is it the pharmacist that has the duty to warn or is it the physician that has the duty to warn? And um, when the cases shake out, uh, the answer is that the physician has the personal relationship with the patient and they are in the position to give the warning. And the pharmacist doesn't have the relationship that really their duty is just to prescribe a medicine safely. If the physician writes for five pounds of this and the pharmacist knows he shouldn't give that much, that then it's his job to say, no, I'm not going to give this. It's not right. But it's not the pharmacist's job to warn the patient of the side effects. Um, and I just like everyone to realize that, that it's your job. And then so... Then I ask myself, okay, here I am. I'm seeing 30 patients. I'm writing 30 scripts. How can I warn them about everything about everything I give? You know, I would reduce my efficiency to maybe one or two patients to shift. So, like learning these legal cases and knowing that, you know, it's my job, uh, I will often write on discharge instructions, read package inserts of every medication prescribed. And then call us if you got a question. But I kind of do a tag your it, put the onus on the patient. Uh, you know, if something's really, really important, like, you know, this is going to turn your urine orange or, you know, some, some other classic thing, then I go ahead and say that. Uh, but I use the package insert as a disclaimer and I do tag your it. Although, you know, I, when I get prescriptions, sometimes they'll give me the bottle from the pharmacy which has glued to the side of it the package insert um and if you take a look at that that that's really not for laymen to be reading i mean no it, it's like it's really it's really complicated stuff in uh, uh, generally and it lists every uh possible side effect that you could ever expect whether you were taking a placebo or not kind of thing so I think that's a, that's a tough one. I, I do think yeah. that we know that if you know that there's a black box on something, I think that, uh, or you should know that there's a black box on something, that's a different story. I think that uh, that physicians who are prescribing drugs do need to be aware of the black boxes and then uh, try to address them uh, if they still think it's appropriate that the medication uh, be given. The other thing I, in, but, in, in this case is... Um, I would I would call it a you know a follow up person like hopefully a psychiatrist or somebody who's going to see this kid get a recommendation of what they would advise uh, whether they should start a medicine in the urgent care or not you know we're, if you're dealing with a depressed kid and you're concerned about suicidality you're you're that's uh, you're you're in the big leagues when you're talk, talking about making a disposition in those cases alone so I like the idea of getting a a phone call in here to a consultant, if you could. And I do want to remind you of the case that we had where an emergency physician was uh, successfully sued because a patient came in 
asked for a refill of their psychiatric medicines. The uh, psychiatric uh, dose was very high, but the patient said, that's what I'm on, that's what I uh, need, that's what stabilized me. And the physician said, well, you know, the package insert says that that's way over what I can should be given, so I'm only going to give you what the package insert says I should give you. He did that, patient went uh, berserko and came into the hospital and ultimately committed suicide and died. And the assertion was that uh, you don't know what this emergency physician doesn't know how to deal with psychiatric medications, uh, doesn't understand that there's a wide range of doses that can be given, and in fact, never consulted a psychiatrist or tried to even call a psychiatrist about this unusual dose that this patient was on, which in fact was stabilizing them. Yep. Well, uh, uh, an analogy to that is, uh, I call it. I call you know when I have a patient with a seizure, and if it's their first time seizure, I, I call a neurologist. I call a neurologist. It's a damn if you do, damn if you don't. If you start them on medication then you're labeling them and their future insurance is impacted and they're economically impacted. If you don't start them on the medication and they go swimming and, and seize and drown, or uh, then you're damned too. So you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And so if you just kind of unilaterally make that decision, you're kind of being a neurologist and I'm not a neurologist. So when I find myself in a situation where I might be stepping over and practicing like a specialty that I'm not really, uh, then I think about calling someone. And uh, I wanted to make you quickly aware of like some, one of the arguments is, uh, well, the pharmacist puts these warning stickers on the bottle. So they're obviously saying they're willing to be part of the liability. And there was a court case that, uh, you know, the physician said, well, he put the stickers a warning, so he should have told them this other thing too. He's part of it. And the court said, no, just because the pharmacist puts a sticker on the bottle doesn't mean it's his job to tell people of the side effects. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned there are multiple cases which assert that it's not the pharmacist's job to do this. And uh, those stickers do not in any way uh, infer a, a duty to discuss other uh, problems with the, the drug. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that we have a good handle, three of us being physicians, exactly what the actual standard of care is for a pharmacist who is giving medications, pills to patients every day. I don't think most of them carry on much of a discussion of the side effects. I, I just don't think that's well, a part of not, the job. It's not their job. Right. And we need to understand that, you know, you go to a CVS and there's a window for consultation. I mean, you can ask pharmacists questions and the pharmacist can answer those questions to the best of their, uh, their ability. And they can advise you about how to take this drug and with food and without food, and it may cause you to be sleepy or something like that. But, but they're, they have, according to the, the cases that, uh, or credit, um, coded by Greg here, that's, that's the end of their uh, liability. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think it's good for physicians to be aware that, uh, you know, I, I, I know 
prior times, I thought, oh, well, the pharmacist is going to tell them that. I don't need to waste my breath, you know. Uh, but just realize, no, it's going to be on you. Yep. The somebody who wrote the wrote the prescription. Pharmacists don't prescribe. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to do another one. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you do the one, Greg, about the kidney stone? Yeah, I want to do. Uh, I'm going to. Uh, I I hope you'll appease me. I'm going to do a little shout out. Um, there's a journal called the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine (CPC). It's cases. And the, the editor is Rick McFeeters. He's a chairman at uh, the ER program at Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. And he has allowed me every issue to present a medical legal case uh, and, and write it up. And it's, it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity, and I appreciate that. And this is a case uh, that's going to be coming out in that journal and it was written up by a, uh, a young uh, physician who's, who's really gifted, talented, a great writer. Her name's Dr. Ashley Jacobson. She's at uh, the Mayo Clinic. So um, thank you. But I wanted to give a shout out to Rick McFeeters for supporting a, a little corner of the publication world to medical legal stuff and this fine Mayo uh, physician for taking the ball and running with this case. But this is a, and I think it has a lot of good points. It's a 35-year-old woman, and she comes in with back pain, and a CTKUB and your analysis uh, were completed, and they demonstrated a stone and also a urinary infection. And the physician prescribed antibiotics and pain medication, and she was told to follow up with the urologist uh, in a couple days. And she went home under the impression that she would probably pass the stone after the emergency physician said, oh, this is a small one. It'll probably go away on its own. And it was like three in the morning and the pharmacy was closed. And so the medication did not get filled. And the next morning she woke up and she was found confused and came back to the ED and she was in urosepsis. Uh, she recovered after a two-week ICU stay, uh, but b- because of the use of pressors and sepsis, uh, she had one forearm amputated and both of her feet amputated. And so then she comes with a lawsuit and said that uh, you didn't ensure that I got those antibiotics. Uh, you you didn't ensure that uh, the prescription was filled. You didn't ensure that uh, I got any antibiotics. And the defense of a physician was, hey, uh, I, I did all the right things, and it's your fault it didn't go well because uh, you didn't go get the medicine filled. And I just thought this case brought up a lot of, lot of real practical things. Um, any comments, sir? This, is, uh, this happens more than, than we'd like to know. We always had a certain amount of medication in the department for this kind of case that we could start them on their antibiotics that night from the department. We knew that it was often trouble to find a pharmacy that was open that was this or that. So we had about eight different drugs, maybe 10, uh, that we were willing to give out the first doses in the department knowing that it might take them some time to get their medications filled. You know, uh, we had an interview with uh, Dave Talon uh, a while ago, and he really drilled home 
the importance of looking that at that UA when you're doing uh, when you're uh, treating a stone patient and assessing that UA whether it had signs of infection and if it does that you take action right then and there and and you know I must admit I never really paid attention to it I kind of thought well we have a stone in here it's causing a mechanical problem causing blockage causing the pain and it's got, uh, scratched the ureter and caused a little blood in the urine. And that made me feel when I saw blood in the urine, that it made me feel more confident that it was a stone. And that was it. Um, but he reviewed cases just like this where, um, people got into urosepsis and they had a bad urine in the ER, which was never acknowledged and picked up and treated. In this case, they, uh, acknowledged that there was an infection, but they didn't do a good job in getting it treated. Um, and I think the idea here was good old ceftriaxone comes to the rescue in these cases. But this case does allow, you know, Greg Moore to talk about this idea of contributory negligence as well. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of points here. What one is I myself was humbled by an infected stone a couple years ago it was a 75 year old lady. Yeah, I saw it. She had a couple white cells, you know. Um, and I might've given her a prescription even for the morning. Cause like our urologists at that facility weren't, weren't, didn't want to be bothered with it. And, uh, within 12 hours, she was back like with a pressure of 60, uh, getting intubated was in the ICU for a long time. And, uh, and, uh, I just was humbled with how quick an infected stone can, uh, can go downhill, uh, that was that was one of the things that I got about this case. I you know that I thought this was neat. The other thing <laughs> is, emergency medicine were open twenty four hours a day, but the practice needs to vary with the time of the day. At three in the morning, you need to say, "How are you going to get home? Uh, are you going to be able to safely get home? Is there someone there to watch you? Uh, are you going to be able to get this medicine? If you can't." Maybe I need to give it right there. Like you said, Rick, a, a dose of rocephin. I, I give a lot of rocephin out in these kind of situations. And then if things go bad, my answer is, well, I gave basically 24 hours of inpatient care with that medication. It's a mm -hmm. once a day IV medicine. Right. Yep. And that would, that would be uh, my defense. And, um, but then the, the defense here, what they used was a concept called contributory negligence, which is kind of like, well, you silly fool, <clears throat> you didn't get your medicine. It's, it's your fault. It's your fault. And uh, that will often be used as a defense. But you have to be careful because if you have a sympathetic plaintiff, you know, if you have someone that's now a vegetable because of that and you stand up and say they're an idiot too – uh, the jury doesn't like that very much. They don't like you calling a victim that suffered stupid too. Uh, it's like piling on. So you got to be careful with that defense. And I'm going to tell you, kind of to illustrate, it was used in this case. They used the, the issue of contributory negligence. If you would have done what I told you, this wouldn't have happened. She lost both her feet and a forearm you know, and it was, and the, and, and there was a payout. What do you think the payout was for two feet and an arm? Is there a chart that you go to? Yeah. Let's go yeah. 1 million, 5 million, hundred thousand. Yeah. Let's say it's 500,000. Oh, yeah. no, I, say, I say higher than that though. 
Yeah, a lot of these will go in. He's only 35, crying out loud. Yeah, a a lot of these will go in the 10 to 20 million. And this was a settlement. So it was a settlement, which means that the plaintiff said, I'll take that for $1 million for two, which is kind of, kind of small. Kind of. I think so too. And so then what is that saying is your argument that it was their fault was probably not going to fly and you know it. So you settled for a million rather than trying to go after the 10 to 20 um, so that the contributory negligent probably wasn't going to work. And then again, it comes back to me that it really was the emergency physician's duty to ensure you know, these kind of things that it's three in the morning. Will she get the medicine? Is there somebody waiting at home? So forth. So I thought this was a multifactorial UTI with stones can crash. You better think about what time and what's going to happen. And uh, also to introduce that concept of contributory negligence. Yeah. 14 months ago, I had a, uh, my first stone uh, stayed, wouldn't, wouldn't pass and uh, within a very few hours, I was crashing, uh, blood pressure of 70 over zip, and uh, it can take you down. All this idea, too, that, well, they'll go out and get the uh, antibiotic. You know, you're there. You've got it. Just go ahead and give it to them right there. Why not give the first dose of antibiotic now? Uh, because then you know that they got it. And when we actually give things through the vein, we know that they're going to have some effect on the patient. The, 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 the other place that this used to come into play for me in, in the past was I worked in a county hospital. Right. And uh, you just didn't know if those people were going to give the, get the medicine. And, you know, I would give them a shot of something. It's like, that's the best I can do. Here's a shot. I hope your immune system's good. I hope things go well. Because, you know, I think a very low percentage actually went and got the medicine. Yep. Greg, can we do, uh, can we uh, elaborate on the contributory negligence uh, thing here that um, you submitted? I I never knew this about uh, pure comparative fault or this idea of all or nothing kind of thing or. um, Yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, yeah, and it's fun. It's interesting. The first case was in England in 1809, and this guy was riding his horse. He was drunk and he was riding his horse fast, and he ran into a gate that was down over the road. And he, he sued the owner of the gate for putting it down. And, uh, and the court said, no, you were drunk. You were riding the horse too fast. It's your own fault. Uh, You can't sue him. And that was uh, used now in medicine defense, where if the patient is part of the problem, if they cause their own bad outcome by doing something or not doing something, uh, then the doctor can use that as a defense and say it's their fault. That's why it happened. And um, and then there's different levels. It, it used to be an all or none, where if the patient was any at fault, uh, they weren't allowed to sue, like because you were partly at fault, you can't sue. Uh, but then later, a lot of states realized this isn't really fair. That bad thing happened. Yeah, it was somewhat the patient's fault, but not all their fault. The doctor should pay some. So then later it developed into, you know, well, if the patient is more than half at fault, they don't get to recover. And later it developed where 
even if the patient's 75% at fault, will hold the physician responsible for 25% payout. So for instance, the patient's awarded 100,000, but they're 75% at fault, then they only get 25,000 as an award. So that, that, that sort of defense concepts developed over time. And each state will have their own view of how they're gonna manage that situation. Well, you know, in some states, it still seems to remain unfair. Um, this is in the show notes, and this came from you, uh, Greg, but there's this idea of what's called pure contributory negligence, which says if the patient is at all responsible for the negative outcome, they can't sue. And yet, Alabama, Maryland, North Carolina, Virginia, and the District of Columbia still have that as their standard. That was la- yeah, that was last checked a couple years ago, so I won't say for sure. But, oh, but okay. as of a few no, but as of Better. a few years ago, I, d- I doubt it suddenly changed. Uh, yeah, yeah, those states those, was, those those states were hardliners. It's like oh yeah, yeah. it was yeah. hardlined four years ago or whenever you checked. <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Then there was the uh, comparative negligence. We understand that, but I I like this one about this modified comparative fault. Damages can be recovered only if the plaintiff's fault was 50% or less. Right. Uh, so that's kind of like a, uh, a, a, a line in the sand. 50% or, loss or less, we can, we can sue. If you're 52% responsible for your problem, you can't sue the doctor. Yeah, right. that sounds extremely opinion-based, wouldn't you say, Greg Moore? 52%. Yeah. It's 52%. I mean, come on. Yeah, but then, yeah, it's and then a lot of this goes into court, and you hear experts, and then you argue, and then the jury says, well, we think there were 57% at fault, and then the jury kind of decides. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, guys, we have about uh, 15 minutes left. I'd like to, if we could... Just to hit the high points of the of the remaining four cases, Greg, sure. you want to pick up this one on um, this uh, mm, prior psychiatric history coming in. Uh, this fifty-three-year-old anxiety bipolar. Yeah. So uh, the next case I want to do is it's just a real quick hitter that has a learning lesson. It's a New Jersey case. A fifty-three-year-old woman came in with a headache, confusion, and lethargy. Her Glasgow scale was abnormal. She had a past history of anxiety, bipolar disorder, and depression. Obviously crazy. The patient was seen by a resident and who felt like this headache, confusion, and lethargy was psych. Uh, And actually their program uh, uh, director was on duty with them uh, that time. And um, the attending saw the physician. A head CT was done. The CT was done six hours later, or revealed a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and she was left with a bad outcome. And so then the plaintiff comes in and says, you know, you labeled my patient as crazy. You sat around for six hours before you got the CT. She was sick. You didn't take her seriously. You labeled her. You judged her. And things could have gone a lot better. And there was a $5 million payout on that. So I just thought this was an important case to uh, illustrate. First of all, the t- the clock is ticking on a lot of cases. The plaintiff lawyer is going to make a timeline, show it to the jury and say, here, she checked in with her life-threatening headed thing. Oh, look here, six hours later, somebody believed her and it looks bad. So time is important. And then be careful about judging someone, you know? Uh, yeah, that's uh 
that's a setup all the time. And, and we're so prone to it. You know, we like the idea of somebody being uh, a little off so that we can blame that uh, as the reason for their being there. Next yep. one. Next case is a 45-year-old with a le lower leg pain since playing soccer the night before. He went to a urgent care, saw a PA, and then uh, uh, still was having problems, getting worse. So another PA that came back. Diagnosis was myalgia, which means pain in your leg. Mm. <laughs> you know, as, <laughs> in your muscle, right, yeah. And, and, uh, and a muscle strain. Uh, however, as this progressed, the patient had all of the classical signs of a compartment syndrome with regarding to tenderness and swelling and pain and dorsiflexion and numbness and the, the anti-inflammatories that they were prescribed by the P two PA visits just didn't seem to work. The supervising physician never sees the patient, signs off on the chart, which is just, a, I think, a, a mistake. And there was a poor outcome. And uh, there was a jury verdict for $3.6 million, 20% for the, uh, to, to the first PA, 40% for the supervising physician, and 40% for the patient, because he apparently didn't follow some uh, follow-up instructions. Um, you won't make a diagnosis unless you consider it. And we're in the worst first business. And so recurring progressive leg pain that it, your colleagues are seeing and now you've seen and now... Uh, is like um, you better be careful and and look for the worst first, and uh, that's what was happening here. They this guy was having the worst first to the tune of three point six million dollars. Um, we talked about signing charts uh, of where supervising physicians sign charts at the end of a shift and stack, you know, and I just never understood what what that signing meant putting your name on the bottom of that thing. You never didn't read it. The patient's long gone. You don't know whether history and physical really reflected what transpired. You, you, so it's like, and you're certainly not going to be billing for 100% when you do that. Well, uh, Rick, we don't know what they're billing for. And the bottom line is when I've looked at these cases and I've seen a fair number who basically say, well, I didn't actually see the case. You know what? Uh, if you're going to sign there and that's the basis on which you bill for the case, then probably you should have seen the patient or that ought to be very clear to someone that uh, that's how the billing situation goes at that particular hospital. I Greg mean, Moore, what do, you, what do you think about this idea of these doctors signing a stack of PA charts at the end of the shift? Well, well, like this, that's one of the reasons I threw this case out there is if you look, the primary provider, the PA, paid 20%. The supervisor paid twice as much. And, uh, you know, you can't be an ostrich. If you think you can bury your head and say, I didn't see him, uh, you're very, very misguided. When you sign that chart, you own it. You own it. You're, you're declaring that I'm right here and I'm part of it. Um, so you got to be careful. You got to be careful. Uh, the other thing I liked about the case is compartment syndrome is tricky. I see it come up over and over and over. You're right, Rick. You got to think of it uh, or you won't get it. And then the other thing I liked about this case based on the other prior cases we had is you could see the contributory negligence came into play where the patient didn't follow up. So they got 40% less too. So 
there was a lot of, I think, good things to learn, uh, not necessarily good things, but things to learn from this case. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. We got a little bit of time left. Um, Greg, what do you think of the last two cases? What, do you have a preference here? Uh, the uh, anchoring bias case or delay uh, diagnosis case? Whichever one, whichever you want, you want. Okay, do the one you want. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, here's another here's another concept case. Here's a 77 year old comes in with shortness of breath, D dimer returns elevated, the creatinine's really high, so uh, you uh, you can't get the CTPA, and a VQ scan was ordered. Uh, then they didn't have the isotope for the VQ scan. Um, so the patient had committed to this diagnosis and was going down the path, but couldn't uh, get the things that he needed. So the patient was admitted for hydration, uh, hopefully to correct the creatinine and get the study. Um, they were given anticoagulation as well. And um, the patient deteriorated and uh, was transferred and died less than an hour after arrival. And the autopsy revealed, in fact, that it was a huge pulmonary embolus, um, the size of which had not been determined because no test had been done. And then again, it's always going to be a timeline. The, the lawyer's going to get the, the time chart out and go, here's where he came and here's where you started worrying. And look here, a day later, you finally got around to looking for it. Um, and this was a... a and then, you know, the defense was I was in a hard place, kind of like the COVID philosophy we we're talking about. Um, and there was ended up being a settlement at mediation for $500,000, which isn't a huge amount. But then again, the person was relatively elderly. So that comes into play as well. Um, the reason I put this case in is uh, you have to be careful. Once you decide this is really a threatening diagnosis that's possible, you can't just stop. If you stop, uh, you're, if it's there, you're going to answer for it. And, uh, you know, you, you got to think about transferring somewhere where you can get what you need or or looking at an alternative test that might answer the question. Um, like, uh, you know, this this led me to look at some MRI stuff. If you have an MRI, evidently it can be pretty good at diagnosing PE and that might have been something you might have tried. Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, uh, there's the concept of what, why don't we just treat while we're trying to find out kind of thing. There are these situations where uh, with, with giving a dose of low molecular weight heparin or giving a uh, oral anticoagulant uh, uh, DOAC, would that be a bad thing to do while we're trying to get the machine to tell us whether, in fact, you've got this diagnosis? We're having some trouble getting this to you in a prompt manner. In the meantime, here, take this uh, uh, pill, this one little pill, and uh, and we'll we'll get to it as best we can. Um, so. That, that doesn't that doesn't get to the idea of getting the diagnosis sooner. These people are struggle, struggling, the clock's running, and they're having trouble. But if is there a big harm in giving a one dose of a DOAC? Uh, no, probably, no, I mean probably yeah. not. No, and in this case, actually, they did. They did. They they started treatment, but it happened to be one of those PEs where if you had 
looked and found and seen its character and size that you probably would have moved on and done more gotcha. aggressive and heroic things. Yes. Um, and then, so the other thing here is, you know, do, do we ever get like in bad situations where we're stuck and we can go <laughs> a lot of different ways? Yeah. Yes. And that's where it's time to do shared decision-making, sir, ma'am, here I am. Neither of the two tests I want to get are available. What do you think about, we just treat you, see how it goes. And if it doesn't go well, move to some other plan. And, and then, you know, maybe you could do a preemptive strike on the bad outcome because mm -hmm. you've talked with the family and they understand, right. well, the doctor was just trying to do the best they could. He told me he couldn't get the test. No, I think that's, uh, that's a, a really good point. And there is, let's just see if we can slide in this last case. This is a case of a 48-year-old who presents to the emergency department with shortness of breath and uh, numbness in his left lower extremity. Um, let me just cut to the chase. This person visited at an emergency department three times, and on the third time, they had an ultrasound of the leg, which was negative uh, for a DVT, and a CT angiogram was re also read as normal. But the patient's condition worsened. And he went to his primary care doctor who diagnosed an arterial occlusion. So he, here's the idea of multiple visits. Things are getting worse. The last doctor in the emergency department did do these tests, but it turns out these tests were falsely negative, apparently. Um, and ultimately, there was a settlement for $1.35 million uh, uh, in this case uh, because... Uh, mm, they, 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 everybody putzed around for, took them four visits to make the yeah, diagnosis. The other, I mean, just a few things here. It's like, this is, a, I mean, to me, if it's a nightmare for me, you know, I mean, gosh, I got these tests. They were read as negative. The, you know, the radiology messed up. Um, and it's, this might be a little bit of a out, outlier, uh, radical example, but one thing is, if you really feel that something's there and a test is negative, don't, you might not stop. And like the classic example is, is the testicular torsion. Uh, I could show you a lot of those where the radiologist reads the ultrasound as negative, but in your heart, you kind of really knew it was there. Uh, don't stop with a negative test if you, as a clinician, are really worried. Uh, be careful of radiologists that report negative studies. Because uh, it happens a lot, and then you go down uh, with them. Uh, I see this stuff happen over and over. So uh, just kind of be skeptical. Trust your clinical intuition. Uh, don't anchor on prior diagnosis. That's kind of what this case teaches us. Although it's, I mean, I don't know, it's a hard one. Very yeah, yeah. Let, let's just be real honest. This is the kind of case that any one of us could get sucked into. Right. Uh, negative testing, particularly when you've examined the patient. You know, we, we don't talk about that much anymore, but we used to actually examine people and we'd suspect disease from the exam. Uh, we're not talking about that much, but the bottom line is when those tests are done, it you buy into things. It's always easy having the outcome, right, Greg? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. It's but really let, let me ask you, Greg, on this case, 
you know, you're an expert. You can pick whichever one you want. Would you say, I want to be the plaintiff because these guy, this guy did a horrible job? Or would you say, no, I'd like to defend this guy. I'd like to try to help him out. I think he did okay. You know, I think he did okay. I yeah, would be willing yeah. to defend him. Yes. I, I mean, it's it's not like he wrote him off. No. I think I think the key here is whenever you see somebody back again, there's a funny mentality in all physicians when they say, "Oh, they're back again." Uh, I think I've uh, one thing I tried to teach the residents was whenever anybody came in, thank God they came back to me because now we have a chance to bail ourselves out, you know, better than having gone to the hospital down the street where they, you know, say something like those fools couldn't even diagnose this disease or that disease. But if, if you think in your career, there aren't going to be difficult cases. Um, you, you've, You've made a bad choice for a li- for a life. Uh, we're going to have difficult cases, and you won't get it. You know, a little honesty w- uh, leaving about we want to see you back if it's not better by this time. Don't go someplace else. Come back here. I think has always stood me in good stage. Like this case, I just go. Thank God I wasn't on duty that day. Exactly. Just thank, thank God, because I think this guy did what I would have done. Right. Uh, but still, it just illustrates radiologists will give you the wrong result. And, uh, you know, trust your intuition. Right. Exactly. Good points, uh, guys. Greg, do you have a wine that you want to do this month? Oh, we do not this month, Rick. And, and that's because they've stopped selling wine in America. It went along with the COVID thing. But I'm sure it will be back next month with everything else. Don't they sell wine in your CVS out there? What kind of <laughs> no, state, they what don't kind do of state that. are you in? Yeah, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you, we're in the kind of state where uh, the, the governor can't decide whether we're going to open. What was interesting is they decided that it was important that liquor stores be open. Essential services. Essential services was defined uh, included liquor stores, but it didn't include gyms. So nobody knew exactly how they made those decisions. The, the, the cutest, the cutest little saying I've seen is that uh, never in history have banks been so happy to see someone with a mask walk in the front door. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, guys, we got to wrap it up. I want to thank the uh, two Gregs. Greg Henry and Greg Moore uh, for contributing this month. And uh, uh, I think that's it. Signing off for now. This is the July issue of Risk Management Monthly. Rick Bicotta. Thank you you all for being uh, with us this month. See you you next month. Greg's. Bye-bye. 